Hey there, ghosties. Thank you for joining us today for episode 68 of the Ghost Lights podcast. Today's guest is Reagan Linton, the artistic director of Family Theater Company. We talked about just how closely related we are with our lives here in Denver, our high school connections, go angels, what, what, as well as her next project opening for family called Coronavox, a documentary style theater presentation consisting of stories with interviews from people who worked on their front lines during the pandemic. Please visit the website for more information on how you can get tickets for the show that opens in May. And aside from that, please sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 68 of the Ghost Lights podcast. Tell your friends and subscribe today. Dan, please give us war by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. out of count ladies and gentlemen it is your boy sam gilstrap and it's the ghost lights podcast ghosties we're back and this time we have reagan linton in the house reagan how the heck are you oh i'm great how are uh, you Sam? <laughs> i am i am doing okay as best as i possibly can be it's the first official day of my spring break away from school so it's nice i don't have to run off to practices and i don't have to you know wear two masks for eight hours a day it's oh my nice word, if you're sitting here talking to me on the first day of your spring break rather than oh, yeah. like going out and enjoying the beautiful weather before it snows again. Oh, I, I did that this uh, afternoon with my with my old dog, Mike. We just sat up there. I, me and him both had a little beer and Ooh. sat in the sun. He likes PBR all of a sudden. <laughs> so he's, he's, a, he's a man of cheap yet classical tastes. And well, I don't judge him for that. No, I don't judge at all. I'm impressed. In fact, does he bowl as well? I feel he like does, he doesn't bowl, but he is. It's, it's weird. He really likes um, podcasts about golf for some reason. So it's just he just lies there and listens to golf, golf podcasts all day. I don't even know what they would even talk about in a golf podcast. Just, oh, well, OK, yeah, we don't need to go there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's all about putters and equipment and, you know, replacing divots. Ah. I think that'd be the extent of it. Yeah. yeah, I guess the divots might be interesting to a dog. That makes sense. So he's really into grass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if he's hungry, he eats it. And then it makes me feel ashamed and I race him back home. But anyway, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a icebreaker question for you. What is your dessert guilty pleasure? Ooh, dessert as in the thing you eat after dinner? Yes. Which you could have at any time during the day. I'm just trying to, what confection or ice cream good is your guess, guilty pleasure? I mean, I do have, I take issue with the idea of guilty pleasure. Cause I don't really think of it as something guilt oriented. Like mm. I, I'm, I'm a person who really believes in, um, you know, anything at any time, whatever you want, let carpe diem kind of thing. So Hell yes. Uh, so, and when it comes to dessert, I'm pretty, I would say the only thing I don't really like is creme brulee. Like I've just never gotten into it. I don't understand it. Like the whole custard thing. Mm. Um, but uh, anything, anything chocolate and gooey um, or uh, 
cookies and cream, ice cream with like, actually, you know what I used to love was like, if you went to um, Billy Bob's or Chuck E. Cheese and they used to have this Sara Lee cake, I think it was Sara Lee, but it had this like really light frosting on it that I've never found anywhere else. And um, so that, I don't know, I guess that would be my quote unquote guilty pleasure if I could just eat one of those cakes by myself every night. <laughs> Absolutely, oh my God. <laughs> I love eating cake by myself. Not, yeah. yeah, it's 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 quite the thing. It also makes me think of like Tina Fey when she on that one <laughs> SNL episode where she just like started eating cake, tons and tons of cake. And I was like, yes, Tina, that yeah, is, the, that's my idea of acting. <laughs> it was like the, it was like something like the stress cake or something like that. Yes, I think, yeah. I can't remember what it was it in relation to like the election or something, I don't know, but yeah. good on you, Tina. Yeah. She, she earned that. I think she earned that. Absolutely. Yeah. She got some heat for it and I could definitely see the argument for it, but in the end it's, it's cake and it makes us feel good. It's cake. And especially for women who are, you know, like if you're willing to sit down and eat a sheet cake on camera. And I mean, that is a woman that I admire. Yeah. That's, that's courage right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so someday, hopefully I'll get that opportunity as well. Well, this, I mean, this week is long. I, I say get to the store tomorrow. <laughs> have, have someone deliver you a cake. That, that should be the next uh, food app. It's just cakes. Absolutely. I'm surprised they haven't done that so far. Maybe they have. I don't know. I'm looking I, it up tomorrow. You know what I also need? I need um, a streaming service that is just Shakespeare and other plays that have been turned into movies. Mm. That's actually, that's a good idea. Like it should just all be in one spot. I mean, I guess we call it from the from the bar to the fences, and it's just absolutely every um, world play that has been converted to the screen in some way, shape, or form. Like Even, good or bad, it doesn't matter. It's just oh yeah, converted. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like we could. De I mean, they've got that Othello story that was called just O with Omar Epps. Mm -hmm. where he's literally holding a basketball over his head or the hoop that says, Oh, <laughs> Josh Hartnett was in that. And I think that was the one of the three movies he did before. Yes. He yeah. Was market corrected. Who the, who the main like female lead was in that. I only think Julia styles, but I don't think that's right. Yeah. It's either her or Clara Danes. Yeah. I would yeah. think, but anyway, that's something we need. I think. Well, and then they can link it up with the cake app. So you get yes. cake delivered while you're watching all the, you know, plays turned into movies. Just use this code. You get 10% off your cake while you watch, <laughs> you know, Ethan Hawke and Hamlet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know. I don't think I've even ever seen that. You know, that's really judgy of me because I love Ethan Hawke. But for some reason, just thinking Ethan Hawke, Hamlet doesn't, I don't know. Yeah. That, no, I have to watch that. It was set in a more modern time. Like I think the the crime that was happening or the empire was like this big, like, I don't know, we'll say importer, exporter business that his dad was running. Sam yeah. Shepard was the ghost. And yeah, it was all, you know, it was the financial espionage and things of that nature. Okay. He did okay. Yeah. When it comes to Hamlet, I think sometimes I'm just judgy because I'm jealous, you know, uh, so jealous of I admit that I just of anyone who gets that opportunity to play Hamlet because yeah. I'd like to do that someday so who knows we'll see there's time it's gonna happen yeah yeah 
That brings me to our opening question, the opening salvo of the Ghost Lights podcast. Reagan, how did theater happen to you? That's an interesting way to, to put it. You know, usually the question is like, how did you get into theater, you know, as opposed to theater uh, being the, the um, aggressor on me? <laughs> um, you know, I think theater was something that I couldn't avoid when I was growing up. Um, I, I was very shy, actually, growing up and uh, would often kind of retreat and my parents got divorced when I was in middle school and I think it just kind of shut me down all the more and I, I didn't want to be a burden to anybody during that time or um, make waves. And so I just kind of was quiet and, and retreated and then started developing, you know, other, other issues with food and eating and all that stuff. And so uh, it was just, it was like theater was the place that I could go and and live my true emotions and, and be the truth of what I was experiencing when I didn't feel like I could let that out in the rest of the world because I was, you know, a young waspy uh, female who, with all the expectations of like, be nice and don't make waves and don't share your true feelings. And so it always just felt like theater was like the, the safe space. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think I gravitated towards it and was actually I was mostly an athlete growing up I played soccer and softball and I skied since I grew up in Denver and um and when I got to high school you had to start choosing like are you going to do athletics or are you going to do theater because they were during the same season and for a while I tried to like I would go to rehearsal and then you know uh go out and do wind sprints on the soccer field and then come back in and jump back into rehearsal and after a while, it just, it was like too much. So eventually I had to choose. And I think I was just, I was kind of a, a weirdo. Like I was kind of a self-described spaz, um, which I don't mean in like an ableist sense or a disability related sense. It was just, that's kind of how I felt um, as a yeah. kid. And uh, so I think it was just a place where I felt like I could kind of be at home and, um, live my truest weirdest self and my most open self uh when i couldn't do that in the in the larger world i guess yeah it was uh it, it's funny you mentioned being a child of divorce and then finding that as a um maybe a a, a place for some semblance of balance yeah uh, i'm a i'm a product of divorce too they would later reconcile as the years went on but there was that long stretch where it's just and product of a divorce but also having you know a biological father who's never there so on and so forth and it took a long time for me to find i mean even when i was doing theater in college and high school it was not where i was the most comfortable it was you know it was it was it was a means to the to an end and it's, it's great that so many people use theater as a way to like find themselves mm -hmm. i'm glad that it was one of those places for you yeah, but that. it's weird. You know, my parents were very amicable, like, mm -hmm. and they, I mean, I probably had the best divorce situation that any kid could have, you know, because my parents were wholly devoted to us. And um, it was not contentious, but there's just something still about, yeah, like being a middle schooler and in the midst of all the shit that you're wading through already, like finding your identity and, uh, and being picked on or, you know, whatever it is in middle school and um, puberty, and, mm. and having that kind of rupture in your life of, uh, you know, 
how, how do I make sure that I am demonstrating that I love both my parents, you know, equally if I'm living with one more so than the other. And um, so, it, I mean, I actually think back and the place that I felt the most comfortable, I, I started taking acting lessons at a place, place down south and my mom would drive me down. And I remember being in her Honda Accord, her like 1986 Honda Accord, and she would have the heat on full blast when it was like winter and snowing outside. And those are like some of my favorite memories of just feeling like cozy on my way down to acting class. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't know, I, I guess, yeah, there's something nice. I, I know often we in theater think of theater as a, a sort of sanctuary, you know, and that it's some sort of safe space for a lot of us. And um, I definitely think that's what it was for me, you know, mm. as a kid. Absolutely. You said you made that choice when you it became too hard to juggle athlete, athletics and theater. And I assumed you went into theater at that point. Um, what was the thing, the positive aspect of this is why I'm making this decision? You know, I think uh, athletics, I mean, I always loved being an athlete. I still mm -hmm. do. Yeah. Um, and in some ways it's really great training, right? For, for being in, in the theater uh, in terms of discipline and in terms of um, having a goal. And to, I'm, I've never been that competitive though. And I think that's where, I, I guess I find the thing that draws me to theater is the empathy of it and the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, which is something that I, I'm kind of, um, my curse I guess in my in my psychosocial spiritual self is that like I I want to be able to live every person's life. I, I have like a really strong case of FOMO. I think <laughs> like feeling like I just want to be able to put myself in every single person's psyche and experience before I die, which I know will not happen. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, therefore that again th that empathy piece of theater is really appealing to me, and it's a way mm. that I felt like I could like share and like really deeply connect on a different level with people, which on the sports field, you know, I just didn't get that same set. There was a camaraderie, but it was a different kind of, of, you know, camaraderie and, and collaboration on the sports field. And, uh, and I think I felt more pressure on the sports field, whereas on in the theater, it was just kind of more about freedom and like accessing some true, fundamental version of myself or of, of a uh, human being. So, yeah. um, so I guess that's, that's kind of what, what pushed me in that direction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I mean, I feel like that the camaraderie piece is, I mean, for your team. Yeah. It's definitely, there's parts of that, that, that it breeds that. I mean, as I'm a, I'm a football coach for my, my school and yeah, like there's, there's definitely a bond, but, even when things were good in our first game last year, I could still see the, 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 the cracks in our, our wall that we were building. This, this ego has the tendency to pop out sometimes. Whereas I find in theater, depending on the process, obviously, and what type of shows that or, or piece it's being put on, those types of things don't manifest themselves in such an aggressive way. I find like, I mean, we're obviously I'm talking about kids, middle school kids. So they're not all the way there in terms of social development and how they handle their frustrations. It's often yelling and the pounding of fists on chests and stuff like that. Aggressive points right? where maybe in theater, you might have a little, a little more passive aggressive displays of those things. 
Yeah. Or maybe just like a more of a multiplicity, I guess, of ways that it can manifest or mm. work itself out. You know, I, well, and I was really fortunate, you know, I went to Denver East high school, which is, you know, a quote unquote inner city school in Denver. Did you, you threw your hands up. Does that mean you went to East? Yeah. East no, Angels, okay. baby. Yeah. <laughs> Class of 02. I'm dating myself. Yeah. That's why I know your name. My sister was in the class of 02. Oh, really? Yeah, Allie Linton. Yes. <laughs> I am vaguely familiar with her. She was yeah. much more popular than I was. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, but, you know, and at East, we were so fortunate because our theater, uh, the head of our theater department, Melody Duggan, was oh, just yes. like the most badass person who was able to to um, forge this environment where it was like, no matter where you came from, you could have been like the rich kid coming from Grayland, you could have been the, you know, person who was ready to drop out or gotten pregnant or, you know, whatever, um, who hung out in the back halls or, but like everybody was welcome. And all of a sudden, as soon as you were in that theater room, she made it feel like you were all just human beings, you know? Yeah. And, and out of that, it's really, interesting because I think the way that she just kind of cultivated um, a respect and love for like every version of humanity, um, there was like this crop of amazing performers that came out of those few years when I was there at, at the, and continued to um, mm -hmm. under Mel's uh, tutelage. And, and I mean, we actually, you know, if you, if you look at like, it was not Denver School of the Arts, you know, it's a DPS public school. Um, but I think we have, out of our class, I mean, we have multiple people who went on to become professional actors, performers, and are still doing it, you know, yeah. which is kind of like um, an anomaly, I guess, in some ways for a non-art specific uh, school. So there was something that she just did that like made it so attractive. You wanted to be around her. You wanted to be around the environment she was creating. and. Um, and so that's kind of what pulled me, pulled me in. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Melody was, she made every day fun. And I think she was so approachable. And you, when you talk about badass, there's the, the absolute truth. Like, that was like my first real inv like introduction to the th a theater person being cool. I always had this like, higher falutin image of these people like their nose always held up they're holding a skull and reciting something yeah and not really looking at you and then she was just like laid back and as you said just like pulling everybody into this this vortex of her passion um she was in a band that my mom followed and had her band sticker on her guitar case for yeah. years and when it was i think my junior year she realized who my teacher was. It's just like, oh my God, you have to tell her. Oh my God, you got to show her this. This so it, Yeah, no, she's great. like this, this like former, and I wouldn't even say former, like continuing, you know, just like mm -hmm. badass artist who like hung around with all these other artists and in her own family's produced artists. And so, and it's funny, I hear about other people's experience of like high school theater. And mm -hmm. often it's these very like, um, uh, dictator like you know folks who kind of get into teaching high school theater because they never really were very successful in it themselves mm -hmm. um, and they're just like really harsh on their on their students and and like a lot of training programs too it's this kind of like well I'm going to break you down and build you up in my mold and you know and I if I don't like you for any reason and that was never Mel Duggan like it, I mean couldn't have been further from the truth 
of what she was. Um, you know, she was just like supportive and saying like, okay, great, who are you? What, what unique aspects um, of your personality do you bring to the stage and let's enhance those and let's encourage those and, uh, and, and then also kind of guide them. But, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't about breaking, breaking kids down. Um, and I just think that's such an important piece of artistry is like, you know, always believing there's like possibility that, you know, I just don't think negative reinforcement is how you make a great artist. No, no. I mean, especially at that age or throughout yeah. those ages, I mean, it's just so much of the life that you're living is being perceived as an effort to break you down in, in finding who you are and how you respond to those things. You'll get through high school and not be close to answering those questions yet. And if you are, being berated by something that is supposed that is supposed to be so i don't know healing yeah i find theater is often healing the arts are healing even if you might not feel that there's something damaged yeah like i mean it's one of the band-aids that we need after this year it's it's yeah totally yeah and i think when you encounter those people who you know are their intention is to put other people down. It, it just always stems from a place of insecurity, you know, and, and I always just try to remember that. Um, so, so, you know, and it's a good reminder for me that like anytime when I start to feel little pangs of, you know, whether it's jealousy or, or envy or whatever, it's like, oh, that's coming from me. That's my issue, you mm. know? So figure out what it is that I um, is going on with me. So, sorry, that's my, the dog that's in our, house being oh, no. anxious it's okay totally fine <laughs> what's the dog's name uh winnie which actually i just realized the other night um you know one of my favorite I, i'm also a i think when i was a kid i was an old soul and and so it, you know the theatrical world kind of exposed me to this um i, I don't know a, a, a repertoire of things that i felt like i could uh understand mm. you know as an old soul as opposed to like the young pop stuff even though i loved you know young poppy things too but um but one of the things i was thinking about the other night is when i was hanging out with winnie here is that one of my favorite plays and something else i would love to do sometime in my life is uh, beckett's happy days and the the main character in that is winnie yeah um and so anyway that was my little record or realization the other night <laughs> that's that's beautiful yeah that's what i feel it's one of the things that allowed me to attached to it so well is one of the i was i i was raised by obviously adults that's not what i meant to say the vast majority of my friends when i was a kid yeah yeah were adults <laughs> so yeah. you know there was my mom and there was there was my gay dad and then there was my mom's best friend and there was all these other mutual adults that were in the room and i would have birthday parties with them and maybe like one other kid so it was the talks about movies and tv shows and watching it with them and seeing what their critical eye was that once i got into theater it was like ah oh, yeah this feels like those conversations mm. that i remember as a kid yeah growing up with those voices yeah did you have a, a particular play or or something that you were really drawn to as a kid in in that space of um you know I, when i was I read, I didn't start reading scripts and like have an idea of like what I, what I really liked until college, but Shakespeare was always just 
I guess it was kind of like offered to me as like, this is what smart people read. Mm. <laughs> I couldn't get into it. And there was, um, there was the movie, the color purple. There was the movie glory mm. and Schindler's list. And those types of stories were the ones that I was like, this is the stuff that I, I, I love. I love, I was always a very serious boy and those types of things were like, you got, don't want to forget about these things. I don't want to, and I've made my mistakes, trust me. But like, those are the stories that have like really like excited me. So when I started doing work, I was, I was really looking for those types of opportunity. Great dramatic works mm. was what I really wanted to do. Yeah. But, but then there was, you know, Martin McDonough and I was like, Ooh, that's fun too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Babby Bobby was one of the my dream roles. I was able to get into that. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank shout outs to Miner's Alley for that opportunity. All right. Yay, yeah. Miner's Alley. Yay. Um, <laughs> I was gonna ask, um, so how did your career evolve in theater after high school here and so on and so forth? Well, you know, I had this dream in high school of like going to a conservatory and I, you know, I went on my little college tour and um, went to NYU and was like so taken with New York City. And I was like, oh my God, I would love to be in New York City. And, but I also like, I, I remember now, you know, there was this, this mystique about a place like NYU and these conservatory programs. Um, but I remember also going to visit them and like watching a couple classes and it was almost like you could just sense the palpable stress, you know, again, that was happening, which there was something intriguing about that of like, Ooh, yeah, that difficult life of your pushing yourself in that. But there was also something that I think I subconsciously felt like, Ooh, like color pull, like, Ooh, that doesn't mm -hmm. feel like how I want to kind of develop my artistry. Um, so anyway, I auditioned for a couple of conservatory programs, really didn't have any clue what I was doing in auditioning. I mean, now I look back at like the pieces that I chose and I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> you know, I remember one of the songs I chose was like, wouldn't it be loverly? Because I just love that. And I remember them asking me like, why did you choose this song? And I was like, uh, well, because it was in my range, <laughs> you know? And I'm sure they were looking for like, what's your emotional connection to this song? How do you see yourself in this mm -hmm. flower girl or whatever? Um, and not that I didn't have that connection to theater, but it just was, it was, I, yeah, I just didn't, I, I hadn't auditioned a lot, you know, aside mm -hmm. from just in high school. Um, so I didn't get into the conservatories, but I had also applied to USC's film school. Um, and, you know, I, I have a great passion for writing and, um, and at that time thought like, well, you know, could I see myself like behind the camera? And I got into the production program at, uh, at USC. Um, so when I didn't get into the, the performance programs, I was like, well, okay, this still feels, you know, prestigious, whatever. <laughs> um, so I went out to USC and, uh, which was not really what I expected. I always thought I would go eastward and I ended up going westward. Um, but when I got out there, one of my first professors in the film program, I remember when he, um, in one of these introductory classes was like, you know, you're never gonna have a good story to tell if 
or, or excuse me, you're never going to be a good filmmaker if you don't have a good story to tell. And so then I was like, well, then why am I like studying film, you know, like the craft of making film as opposed to going and, you know, using these kind of undergraduate years to learn about the world, you know, and, and expose myself and uh, I mean, not expose myself, expose myself to the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so I transferred out of the film program and kind of cycled through a number of majors. I went from film to kinesiology to theater to religion and ended in American studies um, because American studies was kind of like at the point I could just put everything I had taken, you know, under a major and come out with a degree. Mm. Uh, but, but throughout that process, I also was doing theater on the side uh, or, you know, extracurricularly or um, and taking classes were really rooted in theater for social change and, and uh, theater and community and like Augusto Boal techniques. And uh, that's where I met this professor at USC, Brent Blair, Blair, who just exposed me to all of these different applications of theater, you know, in a, mm. where you would take theater into war-torn communities or places where there were conflict and be using it um, as a way to, to heal, as you were saying earlier, like theater mm. for healing and, uh, and, and social change. And that really resonated with me. So I kind of started to throw myself into that. And right in the middle of all of it, um, I was in school working as an RA and uh, went out to, to dinner one night with my RA staff uh, to In-N-Out in Westwood, I blame In-N-Out um, mm -hmm. and Westwood. <laughs> no. um, but on our way back, we, we were on the 10 freeway and um, there was a car that had run out of gas and we came to a stop behind the car and then the car behind us tried to get around us but didn't and hit us at about 75 miles per hour and oh. uh, I was sitting in the middle of the back seat and ended up with a, a complete spinal cord injury so I was paralyzed from my chest down at age 20 and yeah. you know that's not ever something that any of us expects or thinks is going to happen we're invincible when we're young and planning mm -hmm. the rest of our lives and um, so it really it shifted my it shifted everything in my world. I mean, initially it was just like, I was devastated because I thought, well, my, my dreams of being, you know, fill in the blank, like director, actor, anything artistic, you know, are, are over. You don't, you didn't see that. I mean, that was 20 years ago, but even then, you know, it was like, you really didn't see folks with disabilities um, visibly. It's not that they weren't there, but um, doing, artistic things, especially performing. Um, and so I really, you know, kind of retreated into a shell and just thought like, this is not going to be possible. And I don't know what my life is going to be. And, you know, all the while I'm also relearning my body, you know, I'm in a place where I'm flat out in a bed and can't uh, sit up without passing out or vomiting. And then, you know, can't lift my arm to like brush my hair. And I'm having to relearn how my bladder is working, how my bowels are working, how my you know, sexuality is going to function, like all of that. And um, so it was just like really overwhelming. And it was just like, well, theater was nowhere to be had at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so I came back to Denver and um, went through rehab at Craig Hospital right outside of Denver and um, decided to go back to USC to finish my degree, but finished in American studies. But when I got back to USC, my first thing that I did theatrically, I took a solo performance class with this professor, Eric Trules, who was awesome and like a very like kind of in your face, always pushing you for like, raise the stakes. You know, what's what? why do I care? Why do I care about your story? And it was mm -hmm. the first time that I really wrote about 
my experience of, of being paralyzed and all of a sudden, you know, being in this new body and all of the judgments that come along with that. Um, and it was incredibly difficult, but also unbelievably liberating. And it was like everything that I had experienced up to that point of theater and the things that I loved about it suddenly started to coalesce into, oh, right, like this can be, this can be changed not only personally, but then, you know, later on I would come to, uh, you know, the, the realization of like social change and how it can function in social change, particularly with different identities. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's a long way of saying in answer to your question, I was not planning, like, you know, my, my plan had not been to continue in theater, except for like maybe on the side. And I was passionate about using theater again, like in an international social work context. Um, but once I became injured, that was kind of what started to expose me to theater again. And, you know, slowly but surely I made my way back to the stage and started to find this way of practicing with this new body and this new instrument that um, I felt like could have an effect on the larger social change items that I was interested in, in um, you know, engaging with. And so, you know, I kind of went on to, to continue performing. I found this theater company in Denver, Family, which is a disability affirmative theater company uh, that casts actors with all different types of disabilities. And, and that's really where I came back into my own, where, I mean, I was terrified when I thought of getting on stage again. I was just like, I was embarrassed. I was like, this is this disabled quote unquote body, you know, that I was trying to avoid and deny and think like, this is not my identity. And, and it was family really where I rolled in and you had all these different people with all of these different quote unquote disability conditions, you know, um, and they were just like the most vibrant human beings I had ever met. Mm -hmm. And the people who were just like, fuck it all, like, like find yourself, you know, recreate. I mean, we talk about theater, people being creative, quote unquote, but so much of the time we're just fitting into a mold of like what's already sitting there for us or what's prescribed for us. Mm -hmm. And this was, I felt like at family, it was the first time where I was like, okay, you've been broken down. You've been broken apart. You've literally been broken. Your body has been broken and your spirit has been broken and everything has kind of been dismantled. Now you get the opportunity to start building it back up and in an image of like, instead of putting pressure on yourself of what you should be, it's like, how does your body work? Figure it out, learn to use it again, learn to train it again, learn to master it. Um, and that's where I kind of started into performing again and then you know, onward to uh, getting a, a master's and then you know, kind of really throwing myself in more deeply into like disability aesthetics and all of that. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Absolutely, no, thank you so much for sharing that your story in regards to your accident, I mean, that's, that is a one, a heavy thing to share with a friend for maybe the last 30 minutes. So, I mean, <laughs> I had I, an I, open I, book. I, you know. Definitely. No, but, I, but absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and, and I, and I, and I respect that about you. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm picking up as we've been talking is this, there is a, one of the things I feel that you may have found if, if it wasn't there before is just this, there's a, you don't back down from a moment. And, and I, I think, I think that's evident in the, in the career that has come since this moment. Um, when you were in college prior to the accident, I, I just want to touch base. You, did you, you were working on a project about bringing theater 
or at least studying theater in these places that needed to be healed as a way of social activism as well. Um, I am assuming that's something that's always been passionate, a, a passion of yours? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been passionate about affecting some sort of positive change in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always been a bit, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm a Libra. I'm a, <laughs> uh, I've kind of been a, an idealist a lot of the time in my life, but I, I believe in idealism. I think without the idealists, like we don't move things forward. You know, you've got to have a dream. You've got to have a, a belief that things can be better mm -hmm. um, uh, or, or be different. Uh, so, and I think it was just those college years that started to expose me to, you know, I thought of like doing the Peace Corps and I thought of, um, you know, looking at different fields that um, would, uh, take me into those realms of social change. And, and I guess it was the college years that started kind of making the link between this passion that I had for theater and performing and storytelling uh, and that, that social change um, impetus in my life. So yeah, and, and I, I didn't mention that after I came back to Denver and started performing with family, I, did, I went back and got my uh, masters of social work at DU thinking again that I wanted to go and do like international social work and but it was right about the time that I was really getting into performing with family and I it just this light went off where I was like oh every time I get up on this stage I'm having this effect because people don't see this they don't see wheelchairs on stage they don't see people with disabilities getting up there and and like literally just being human and being artistic and creative. And so it was like this very simple thing, but literally by just putting a different body in front of people, doing something that they weren't accustomed to seeing, mm -hmm. that was this very fundamental version of, of change. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think I've always been, you know, I probably grew up with, my mom always jokes that like, I was a C-section kid and um, and when I came out, I think she was like so sick that she just like didn't really want to see me for a little, not that she didn't want to see me, but she was yeah. just like, oh, I feel awful. Like don't, so, uh, you know, um, maybe I've always felt a little rejected and a little like I, you know, have to constantly prove my worth throughout my life. <laughs> so I think that's part of my desire to to do good and, and um, you know, make a positive change in the world. Uh, but I also just, I don't know, it just, especially after my injury and having an experience where it was like, I easily could have died, you know, and mm -hmm. I had some other side injuries, like a dissected carotid artery, which is something that like normally people die from. Um, and they didn't find it in me until a couple of weeks later. And um, so I think I do, I, you know, it, it just gave me this perspective on life of like, man, this thing is so short and like, there's so, it's so tenuous and it's so ephemeral and you never know what's going to happen. And so like, why not put all of your energy into, you know, the, the, the positive things and just going for it every day and like, and, and trying as much as possible to not live according to fear, mm -hmm. but like live according to uh, just, making the world a more joyous place. I mean, I know that sounds so cliche, but that's truly like what I really try to focus on is like, how do I, how do I use my energies to expand people's understanding, people's awareness, people's empathy, people's joy, um, you know, and that's all in the, in the context of like my very dark, uh, 
fatalist view of life. (laughs) But again, you got to have both. It's the yin yang of life, right? You got to have those really dark places um, in order to have the light. Otherwise, if you don't have them, you know, yeah. Well, it doesn't, the, the light doesn't shine as brightly. If you don't know what the opposite of that is, if you yeah. at the very least have some idea of it, yeah, then you then there's something in the light that you'd be missing, right? When you were talking, I, oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, yeah. I, I mean, and the idea of opposites. I remember um, Steve Wilson at Family. He's a, a local um, director and was artistic director at Family before I or when I came back to be an actor. Um, and I remember he was the first one that really kind of taught me about this idea of opposites uh, in, in a theatrical acting um, context, you know, of just like playing the opposite of what you would expect in something, um, which I just think is so fascinating, but I'm always just a, really attracted to these, these um, concepts of balance or opposites in the universe because everything exists alongside its opposite. And so I was just gonna say, you know, you literally don't have light unless you have dark it, mm-hmm. uh, without that context without that you know juxtaposition uh, in a relation to its opposite you wouldn't have light so mm-hmm. again they have to exist together oh, yeah absolutely couldn't agree with you more uh, you were talking um about your introduction to um family or in the theater company filled with these people with disabilities and how strong and vibrant they were people one of the things that really struck me about your take on that experience is this idea of they've already been broken and rebuilt themselves there's nothing holding them back for i assume their expression on stage i don't know necessarily what my question is but it's such a it's a beautiful thing bred out of what some would deem a tragedy i would say this the strength not just to carry on with their existence but then to be able to give some stunning performances and give themselves to that type of self-exploration yeah what is it about your perspective on family that separates their work from other theater communities i mean i think you hit the nail on the head of like one, one of one of our actors and family, Stephen Hahn, said, you know, family, PH family, because it's spelled with a PH because it was originally the Physically Handicapped Amateur Musical mm-hmm. Actors League, uh, the real mouthful. Uh, we've done away with that because it doesn't really apply in a number of ways to what we do anymore. So we just go by family. Um, but he said, you know, family is just like l- living life amplified. You know, everything is just so you know everybody has ups and downs everybody has you know their good days their bad days when you have a group of folks that have unique circumstances whether they're physical whether they're cognitive whether they're emotional um but they they cause this you know kind of amplification of every aspect of their lives you know so um everything takes a little bit longer for for many of them. Everything is a little bit more difficult because the world is not constructed uh, physically or attitudinally to accept them or to support them. Um, uh, You know, any given day, like maybe 
a quote unquote normal person or you know non-disabled person um, is dealing with their stuff, but it's not necessarily going to be like on the brink of life and death like it is for a lot of our actors. Uh, we, you know, we had uh, an actor, one of our longtime beloved, masterful actors, Lucy Ruches, passed away a couple months ago. And um, I think about the things that she went through. She had Parkinson's disease, and literally on a daily basis, her body would shift. You know, uh, she would, or, or from a moment to moment basis, you know, one moment she would have absolutely no movement, like totally frozen. And then, uh, you know, 30 minutes later, because her meds had kicked in or something, she'd be uncontrollably moving, um, you know, uh, and, and unable to, to kind of direct her body in a certain way. So thinking about like, just that, you know, those extremes of how you're, how you're coping with your body kind of being out of control, the way people are receiving you being out of your control. And therefore, yeah, you learn, you, you develop ways, you adapt, you, um, you find solutions, you, you figure it out, you cope. And, um, and, and I'm not, you know, people with disabilities are not, um, heroes, you know, that's the other dangerous thing is that like, we build them up to be like, Oh my God, they're all such inspirational and just rolling out of their houses. They're, you know, wow, so heroes. It's like, no, they're just living their lives. But there, there should be an awareness that like the lives that a lot of folks with disabilities lead um, are to the yeah. extreme. You know, they, they are more extreme. They are not in the middle of the spectrum. They are, um, at, you know, at further ends of the spectrum in terms of what the experiences are. And a lot of that is, again, like based on, you know, how they move through society um, and how society is not built for them. And um, so, and I think that therefore, you know, there's a natural survivorship that occurs. You know, I think there's, there's this misconception that folks with disabilities are fragile. And I think it couldn't be further from the truth. Like, and it doesn't matter whether you've acquired a disability or whether you've had a disability from birth. Even if you've had a disability from birth, you have lived every single day of your life having to adapt and like, you know, create yourself outside of a mold. And then if you acquire a disability, you've got to adapt from what you were and into what you now are. Um, so I really think that like having a disability is this version of survivorship. We're all survivors as human beings. We all have lived through something if we make it to a certain point in life. Um, but again, with disability, it's just yeah. amplified. It's just, um, you know, to a greater degree, a greater extreme. And um, so I think, again, coming into that kind of uh, an environment where you, any of these folks know that like the one day that they feel good and they can get on stage and they can do whatever they have to do, even if it's amidst like a bowel accident or their meds not working or having an emotional, um, you know, a really tough day uh, or something like that. Um, it just makes it all the more sweeter because they know the next day they could be stuck in bed or they could be in the hospital or, and I mean, this literally happened. Like when I was in Man of La Mancha, um, I was playing Aldonza or Dulcinea, the lead in that. And um, one morning I woke up and found that like I had this little skin issue and folks with spinal cord injury constantly have to be aware of their skin, right? Because if you don't feel, you know, those of you who can feel, if you're sitting on your your sits bones or ischials all day long, um, you'd be able to feel like, oh, my butt's falling asleep or I'm starting to get uncomfortable. So you shift or you stand or you, you know, readjust. We can't feel that. And so, you know, we, we tried, like I've learned to 
time when I need to shift or whatever in order to avoid getting skin or pressure sores. Um, but sometimes you have things where like you don't feel a piece of clothing is rubbing on you and it starts to create a thing. So anyway, long story short, um, I woke up one morning and had this like huge deep purple, red, awful thing on my butt. And I was like, oh my God, like this could take me out of the show. So I went and to the doctor and had it and they were like, you have to stay off of it, like completely off of it for two weeks. And this is in the middle of rehearsals. And so I went to Steve Wilson and I was like, I think I'm going to have to drop out of the show. And he was like, no, you're not going to drop out of the show. So what we did, I went to rehearsals. I like laid over on the side of the room and spoke my lines and somebody else kind of like rolled my um, blocking for me. Um, so I was still in the room, still learning like what the blocking was going to be. Um, but I was staying mm -hmm. off my butt, you know, and letting it heal. Um, and luckily by the time, by the time I had to get on stage, it had healed up enough that I was able to, to be in the show. But again, it's yeah. that kind of thing where it's like, and not to say again, that any actor, regardless of disability, couldn't have that too. You know, we're all humans, we're all vulnerable. But I think those things are just so much more present on a daily basis for some of us with disabilities that um, it just, it, it makes it so that when you're on stage, oh my God, it's like, all of the most wonderful things times a thousand, you know, um, because the, it's just that much sweeter that you can, yeah. you can be there. Um, and because we're not led on to many stages or we can't even get onto many stages. Yeah. Right. So when you find a company or an environment where you're actually supported and, um, affirmed, it's like, oh, I mean, yeah. it's like heaven. I mean, Steve is a, I've been, I've had the good fortune of um, working with him on the last couple of summers, he's, he's let me help out with the JCC and uh, he's moving on to bigger and better career moves. But I mean, just to, just to, the guy that I know is just a sweet, smart, caring man. And that's, I'm, when you get that from your director, he takes that, I mean, especially for the, obviously for that, that, that show with that theater company, that sure takes a specific type of mindset to just be flexible for all of those things that come up. But I mean, hearing it from yeah. Steve, I was like, yeah, that's our boy. That's our boy Steve right there. Yeah, um, totally. I, one of the things I took from that story as you were telling us from your perspective is that this, one of the things that I know I take for granted is intention on stage. So what are the, mm -hmm. it, it's a tool that we all work at. Um, some of us, do it better than others. And then some of us like really need to like sit with our noses in the script and our choices and really get really specific about our things like that. And, and I would, I would think that for an artist with a disability, the focus on every moment, that in level of intention, just a little more amplified, as you said. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've also, you know, I've now worked with a lot of actors with disabilities in my role um, as artistic director of family. And, um, you know, there are just as many lazy actors with disabilities <laughs> as there are with them. Yeah. You know, where I'm oh, like, yeah. come on, like, yeah. you gotta, like, dude, There's give a shit people. about this. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's still people. Um, but yes, I mean, but that said, you know, I think sometimes, you know, like with family, we have a much longer rehearsal process um, because of it's the it's the little tiny things that you maybe would never think about in terms of 
a wheelchair navigating with somebody who is blind. And so the movement, the intention behind the choreography, um, it, yeah, it takes on a different intention so that you're maintaining safety. You're, you're also building it to be something that both of these humans can do uh, and um, that's built for their bodies uh, as opposed to, you know, I, I do think that there's in kind of classical quote unquote training in theater, it's often about like, well, here's the exercise and you figure it out. Like you actors, you kind of mm -hmm. conform, you know? And I, when I was in grad school, I worked with a Romanian director who I actually loved, but you know, he him coming from a Romanian, um, Thank you. Uh, bless you, uh, uh, like training perspective. It was like actors were pawns, you know? They step into the room, the director is everything. And you're just basically, using the actors to kind of do your bidding. Um, and I, I, so I, I think the, the, the theater environment is just sometimes not as human centric, right? There's a, an elevation of the director's vision or um, of the, the playwright's script. And, you know, I think often the actor has kind of been diminished in that. Um, and, and, you know, then, of course you balance that with like kind of American acting training, which was really elevating the actor and saying like, what, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What, are, how do you matter? You know? Um, uh, but I, I think it's all to say that um, I do think that there's kind of an extra intention that is added with performers with disabilities because they just exist outside of the conventional mold of how you typically do theater or how you navigate a stage or what the choreography is going to be or you know so it, it requires a little bit more intention and human human centric attention um, in order to kind of be successful you can't just you know it's not just a swath yeah. it's not just um, you can't just half asset or phone it in. It's it's got to be, you know, and and you focus on the details, which is something I love. And I found with a lot of you know directors that I worked with outside of family when I, whether it was in grad school or at Oregon Shakespeare Festival or other places I performed, um, it's fun it, and it's fun for them because it's like, oh, this is here's a, a human with an instrument that I haven't necessarily worked with somebody like this before. And so what can we together find and um, explore and discover? Uh, and it becomes just much more nuanced mm, and detailed, absolutely. I think. Um, I would say, what? Uh, why, why do you think theaters outside of family struggle casting differently able to actors and artists? No, man. That's like a whole 10 hour podcast. Well, I we, I mean, I, I <laughs> don't, no. I'm an insomniac, so go ahead. <laughs> I, it is, it is that question or the answer to that question is just as complex and nuanced as the whole identity mm. of disability in, you know, and beyond. Um, I don't think that there's one reason. I think a lot of it stems from this very innate fundamental fear and misunderstanding that humans who don't have disabilities have about mm -hmm. disability because of our social conditioning, because of the 
historical way in which, you know, disability has been treated because of how we feel about bodies that are broken and vulnerable and we don't want to be that, you know, so that's the first hurdle is just like the individuals working at these theaters and their own personal discomfort around disability or saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. Um, but then, you know, again, like, Disability is often thought of in life, but also in theater as like a characteristic, you know, mm -hmm. that you don, right? That you use a wheelchair or a walker or a cane or, and you're playing at it. Um, and, and, you know, I think the, the whole idea or, or there's a misconception that people with disabilities can't do things, you know, before they can do things. And so there's just this overall assumption that like, oh, they're either not going to be able to perform or if they do, it's going to be at a lesser quality or lesser, yeah. less rigor, you know, less rigorous um, approach. And, and that's where, you know, I've really tried to work to do whatever I can to kind of overturn that and say, no, it's not going to be, you know, diminished artistry or diminished rigor. It's, but mm -hmm. it will be different. Like the, but it doesn't mean that it can't still be extraordinary um, but but we've got to kind of tackle uh, uh, and dismantle these really underlying fundamental um, stereotypes about the disabled body, the disabled person, because otherwise nobody's ever going to be able to get past it, you know, or like uh, be comfortable seeing folks with disabilities Absolutely. on stage. Um, and and I think that's part of the magic of family, right? Is that, I mean, the thing we always hear with family is that people come, they start watching the show within the first like 10 minutes, they're only looking at, you know, the different bodies on stage, the different people, you know, and kind of trying to diagnose them and like, oh, what do you think that person had? And then after that first 10 minutes, it becomes the new norm, right, for them. And then they don't see it at all. And they're just paying attention to the story. Um, and I think overall in society, that's what we need, right? Like we need to just be seeing things more, experiencing people more in all of their different forms. So there's just like, oh, this is just normal. We don't have to constantly be giving reason for why there's uh, a wheelchair or a person with autism or a blind person on this stage. They're there because they're a human being yeah. and they're playing this role. Uh, but again, I think it just, it hasn't happened enough to become part of like the, intrinsic uh, approach to theater. Um, but the more we do it, the more we become comfortable with it. It's just like when women got on stage or people of color getting on stage, it's like, yeah, you put them up there and then we start to be like, oh, this is normal, mm. duh. Like, let's demand this, you know, that's the next step is demanding it, um, which I think we've gotten to in terms of gender at, or, you know, and, and folks with, of color, um, at least, for the most part, I know there are still a lot of hurdles to get over that. We saw that with We See You What, you know, like there are a lot of issues, um, but disability, it feels like is still, you know, still literally look like the ugly stepchild yeah. in the room um, that nobody really wants to touch because I think yeah. they're just uncomfortable. But you're absolutely right. I think one of the ways that it, we get more comfortable with it is seeing it. I mean, when you were talking about one of the struggles that you faced after your accident, this idea that you didn't see people in wheelchairs on a lot of media. I mean, I mean, shoot, my first, my first real experience with somebody, a person with a disability was, was Marlene Matlin. And, mm -hmm. and she was so, so good at what she was doing. 
still is. And within a moment, like you forgot she that she was deaf, that she struggled at all. And she told the story that she was telling beautifully. And then she just became to me a star. Like she's just a celebrity. She's just another artist out there. But yeah, that's one person out of years and years of me sitting in front of a TV or going to the movies, seeing things on stage. Once we mm -hmm. provide more opportunities to, I mean, to cast people with these awesome ways of expressing themselves that are different than myself, that once we can norm yeah. like normalize is such a, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that word that much these days, but it is, I mean, because I, I, I attribute it to numbness and I don't want to do that necessarily. But I mean, once we, once we gain the comfort with it, it's, it's not going to come if we avoid it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. When it, I, I mean, gosh, I don't even, I can't even think of like what the first wheelchair was that I, you know, can recall seeing after my injury, you know, in a theatrical context, but you know, if you think about where it usually does show up, it's either like the old dude in, you know, um, like mm. the man who came to dinner or, uh, or it's like Fefu and her friends and it's this kind of nutty, crazy woman or it's, you know, Nessa Rose and Wicked where mm. she stands at the end and everybody's, oh, yay, she stands, you know, she's healed, whatever. Um, so it's, it, you know, but you never see it as just like, oh, it's like mm. the funny friend in the play or it's the mother or it's the teacher or it's the lawyer or, you know, and so that's where I've, um, you know, I hope we start to see it again, like you said, more kind of fitting into what we perceive mm. as the norm, um, that the norm is inclusive of all these different folks. And, and it is hard, you know, like, like race, like gender, you know, when you have a disability, when that is part of your kind of instrument package, um, it's that constant balance of like, well, how much, how much do I, I guess in a sense, like lean into that aspect of my, of who I am, because it is a part of me, you know, disability is not just a, a yeah. circumstance. It is a culture. It is a way of moving through the world. It is a way that you're treated in the world. You know, um, just it's an identity, just like race or gender or um, ethnicity or, you know, uh, nationality. Um, but, you know, also like women or non-binary folks, or also like uh, uh, black folks or, uh, Asian Pacific Islander folks are, you know, it's like there's an opportunity to play roles that are culturally specific. And it's mm -hmm. also important to see that and to do that um, and to tell those stories and to tell the stories of disability. But it's also like at my core, I'm also just an artist, you know, and I don't want to feel like every time I get on stage, it has to be a disability related mm -hmm. story, right? Um, and so it's like, how do you balance? And that's where, you know, sometimes I'll get the question like, well, which should it be? You know, should it be that we need more stories of disability or should it be that we're casting disabled actors in, you know, like Man of La Mancha? And, and it's like, well, yeah, yeah, yes and. I mean, it shouldn't be an either or. It should be all of it. Um, uh, and again, just expanding that breadth of um, what we see on stage. I remember when I was at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you know, one of their big, um, missions or, or part of their mission is to say, we want to represent 
humanity, you know, we want to represent what you, what you see when you go out into the world or what you experience. Um, and that includes disability. One in five people mm -hmm. has a disability uh, in this country. And so if you're not putting that on your stages, just like if you're not putting women and non-binary folks and trans folks and uh, people of color of all different kinds, you know, and indigenous folks, if you're not putting them on your stage, then you're not actually representing the truth of, of our full humanity. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it is complex. It's very complex. And so I, I mostly just say, it's just yeah. get us in the door, like just have us represented mm -hmm. somewhere, somehow. Um, and that's the first big step. And really it's not as hard as these theaters think a lot of the time. Um, sometimes it will take some adjustment, but you know, like when I was up at OSF, I think there was, you know, some trepidation off the bat of like, is my health gonna get in the way, whatever. I did not miss a rehearsal. I did not miss a performance. I was like one of, I mean, I think from my perspective, one of the least complicated actors <laughs> they had to deal yeah. with. You know, there are, actors have a lot of compli complication yeah. of different kinds. Um, so sometimes, you know, I don't know, folks with disabilities, you're, again, they're just humans. You're gonna get the same kind of stuff you get with anybody else. Yeah. No, I, I, I would totally agree about actors with complications. I, for one, don't take a show without having a bowl of M&Ms where every third M&M um, doesn't catch light off the spectrum. So you almost don't even know it's there. It's, it's right. It's, that's yeah, your it's, writer. It's in the contract. Yes. That's, that's what you get when you get me. You get specific things about M&Ms. <laughs> See, that's what I should make. I mean, like, why, why don't we consider that a disability? I mean, I think we should, you know, just start, we can say you're a disabled actor because you need your, <laughs> no, I don't I'm sure some people that would be listening right now being like, what? No, that's no, no. No, that's just me being a jerk. <laughs> <Not> a <disability>. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what a, an extension of this conversation, and uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, but how can local theaters... Uh, accommodate audiences but more more rather how do they do better things for people with disabilities how do they accommodate those people you know i mean there's so many different things but really it comes down to are you making people mm. feel welcome and this is where it's again not just and, and i it's not just people with disabilities um, and I know I've pointed a couple of times to gender and race and, and ability. Um, those are just, you know, those are kind of some of the, the larger social identity categories that I think have been traditionally omitted, marginalized, uh, left out of the traditional kind of white, um, able, uh, cisgender theater space. So that's why I keep pointing to those. Um, uh, but not that they're the only ones who are, are necessarily being marginalized. But again, and, and also not that there aren't a lot of theater spaces that are not historically theater spaces of color, right? We, we tend to think of like, oh, theater is just a white space. It's like, no, it's not. Theater has been made by people of color, you know, throughout history. It's just that we uh, ignorant white people sometimes don't, yeah. don't realize people that. Did it first. That. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, but I think in these kind of predominantly white theaters and spaces that are also, you know, white supremacy and ableism are, are deeply mm -hmm. intertwined. Um, and so it, it's just about, I mean, the first step, it's not just, 
the first step is thinking about how are you making people feel welcome? How are you making them feel comfortable? Are there things you're doing to make them feel uncomfortable? You know, you think of like a simple thing of bathrooms and how bathrooms can be um, uh, alienating for folks if they can't get into the bathroom or if the sign on the door doesn't, you know, identify them as being allowed into that bathroom. Um, so it's, it's little things like that. And it's just, are, is somebody come, if somebody's coming in and if they request something, if they say, this is gonna make my theatrical experience, you know, um, uh, meaningful, yeah. right? That you don't just shut them down, even if you don't know how to make it happen, that you say, yeah, we're going to try to make that happen for you. What, you know, let's, let's have that person that you can talk to. First of all, let's make sure that there's that contact for an accommodation, um, or something that somebody needs. And, and then making sure that like everybody on your staff is attuned to that. So that if somebody comes in and says, Hey, you don't have such and such, is that something, you know, you don't have audio description or you don't have ASL interpretation, or, uh, do you have a quiet room for my son who has mm. autism? You know, it, that you're just willing to say, number one, if you don't know how to do that, that you're willing to say, you know what, I'm not sure, but let me check on that for you. And then you actually do something about it to try to make them feel welcome and, and give them that experience. Um, so I think that's the, the first biggest thing is just thinking of like, how are you creating that welcoming space? Even if not everything is perfect yet, right? Like we all mess up family theater company, we still make mistakes all the time. We're constantly in a space of trying to be better. Um, and then, you know, the second big thing is putting people like them on stage. You know, it's like, if you're, if you're only ever going to see shows where it's white, able, cisgender people, and then you're wondering why those other communities or the non-white, able, cisgender communities are, uh, why they're not coming, it's like, well, yeah, then why, why not consider putting some of them on your stage um, and incorporating them? So, you know, putting them in the room where it happens. So I think it goes a long way. Again, representation, visibility and representation. Um, and the more you represent in different areas, you know, both on your staff, on your stage, um, I think the more that begets people hearing about it and also wanting to come and be part of it and support it and just say, oh, hey, this is, somebody mm -hmm. like me, you know, that's awesome. I want to, I want to see that. Um, and the nice thing is in terms of disability, it is still in the theatrical, con in, the in the context of the theater world, it's frankly still a bit new, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it shouldn't be, but it's new and it's kind of like a new frontier. Um, you know, so you also have people who are constantly trying to figure out how do we do theater differently? And I'm not saying, I'm not you know, advocating for tokenizing people at all, but it is just saying, here is something, here is a leaf that is unturned at this point. Here is a frontier that has not been explored in terms of engaging this population of artists in your work. Um, so why not do it, you know, and see, see what new things you can discover. Um, so I guess those are making people feel welcome and, and thinking about representation and where you're representing the community. Wow, that's, those are great points. You're absolutely right.
but then you can move on to all the other details, right? <laughs> of like there, and I mean, family has, you know, lists of like 10 places to start and then all the accommodation needs and how to shift your pro your practice and your, your structures and your rehearsal and your performance and all of that. Like there are a lot of things, but again, it, it mostly comes down to that human centric environment and being willing to say, we value this human being. We realize what they need doesn't match up or doesn't line up with the way that this structure and this form mm -hmm. has been created. So how can we adapt how, and how can yeah. we adjust? Um, before we start to transition out of here, you're working on a project right now for family. Uh, I'm assuming frontline perspectives. Uh, am I close? Yeah. Yeah, so we're calling it Corona Box. So we have a history of a project called Vox Familia. So the family voice um, kind of in Latin. Uh, and uh, we decided to do a new project during COVID, which was interviewing different frontline or essential workers and um, then creating theatrical pieces based on their experiences. So that's what we're in the process of doing. Um, it's gonna be presented all virtually our actors have now, or we had writers write the pieces. They're now rehearsing them and filming them and uh, we'll be presenting oh, that in May. So I think it's been really awesome. I mean, the people, you know, again, it's very humbling as an artist. I, I love what I do. I feel very fortunate to do what I do, but um, you know, one of the reasons I love different types of theater, including like documentary style theater is that you get to talk to all these other people out in the world who are doing something that's so different from what you do. You know, they're working in hospitals, they're working as caregivers, they're working in grocery stores and food preparation. Um, and you get to a, a bit of their perspective and we're, we're lucky that we get to share a little bit of their stories, um, you know, in, in that we have a platform Absolutely. to do that. Um, where would they be able to, where would people be able to find that um, online? Uh, we had tickets just go on sale, but it's on our website at uh, family.org, and that's P-H-A-M-A-L-Y dot O-R-G. Awesome. Um, Reagan, when we get to this point in the podcast, um, we we ask, oh, what is that ghost light you wish was left on for you um, that you'd like to leave on for the next generation of artists to follow? Hmm. I, I think kind of, you know, again... What we were talking about earlier that um, we're all really fortunate to get this moment of life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what the alternative is. I don't claim to, uh, you know, people can have beliefs about that. Um, but, and life can be shitty. It can be struggle. It can be awful at times. But I also think that it's those moments of struggle that are really uh, what make meaning or how we can make meaning of our lives um, and make purpose. And, and most of all, it's like it, it, we do, we, we have this just very short time, uh, particularly if you think about it in the scheme of the universe and the history of the universe, like we, we're so tiny and insignificant, but in the context of people in our lives and in the context of our opportunity as artists, again, to share stories, to make meaning, to build empathy, to build community. Um, in that we are significant. And so don't squander that significance. Don't ever take that significance for granted. I would say value it, put every ounce of what you have into it while you have the ability. Um, and then when your ability changes, mm -hmm. change with it. <laughs> uh, but mostly just, just 
don't stay don't stay in that space of um, I don't know pessimism or ingratitude or try not to you know or use that use that to fuel something that you create uh, because in the end I think the greatest opportunity we're given in life is to create something and so do it while mm. you can beautiful no thank you so much Reagan, honestly, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate having you on, um, giving me a different perspective. It's been, it's just been very eye-opening. And Absolutely. after the week we've had, I'm, I'm very thankful for your voice. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for in, inviting me. And um, it's been a joy. It, yes, it has been a joy. Um, ladies and gentlemen, normally at this time of the podcast, you know, we, we kick it to war by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble, but I would be remiss if I just went with business as usual. It has been a difficult week for a lot of us, especially those within the Denver theater community. We've lost someone very special to a lot of us and a, a, a big part of our history here. So tonight I would just wanna say, hug those that you can hug call those that need a call and be there for someone and take care of yourself. I'll leave you now with a moment of silence and I appreciate you being with us ghosties. Thank you. <laughs>